Section 15 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 4, Luther, by the Reverend T. M. Lindsay, Part 3. Luther began his work as a reformer in an attack on what was called an indulgence proclaimed in 1513 by Pope Leo X farmed by Albert of Brandenburg, Archbishop of Mainz, and preached by John Tetzel, a Dominican monk who had been commissioned by Albert to sell for him the papal letters, as the indulgence tickets were called. The money raised was to be devoted to the building of St. Peter's Church in Rome, and to raise a tomb worthy of the great apostle who, it was said, lay in a Roman grave. People had come to be rather skeptical about the destination of monies raised by indulgences, but the buyers had their papal letters, and it did not much matter to them where the money went after it had left their pockets. The seller of indulgences had generally a magnificent welcome when he entered a German town. He drew near it in a center of a procession, with the bull announcing the indulgence carried before him on a cloth of gold and velvet, and all the priests and monks of the town, the burgomaster and the town council, the teachers and the school children and a crowd of citizens, went out to meet him with banners and lighted candles, and escorted him into the town singing hymns. When the gates were reached, all the bells began to ring, the church organs were played, the crowd, with the commissary in their midst, streamed into the principal church, where a great red cross was erected and the Pope's banner displayed. Then followed sermons and speeches by the commissary and his attendants, extolling the indulgence, narrating its wonderful virtues, and inviting the people to buy. The elector of Saxony had refused to allow the commissary to enter his territories, but the commissary could approach most parts of the elector's dominions without actually crossing the boundaries. Tetzel had come to Jutterbog in Magdeburg territory, and Zürz in Anhalt, and had opened the sale of indulgences there, and people from Württemberg had gone to these places and made purchases. They had brought their papal letters to Luther, and had demanded that he should acknowledge their efficacy. He had refused, the buyers had complained to Tetzel, and the commissary had uttered threats. Luther felt himself in great perplexity. The indulgence and the addresses by which it was commended, he knew, were doing harm to poor souls. He got the letter of instructions given to Tetzel by his employer, the Archbishop of Mainz, and his heart waxed wroth against it. Still, at the basis of the indulgence, bad as it was, Luther thought that there was a great truth that it is the business of the church to declare the free and sovereign grace of God apart from all human satisfactions. The practice of indulgences was, in his days, universal and permeated the whole church life of the times. A large number of the pious associations among laymen, which formed so marked a feature of the 15th century piety, were founded on ideas that lay at the basis of the practice of granting indulgences. Pious Christians of the 15th century accepted the religious machinery of their church as unquestioningly and as quietly as they did the laws of nature. That machinery included, among other things, an inexhaustible treasury of good works, of prayers, fastings, mortifications of all kinds, which holy men and women had done, and which might be of service to others, if the Pope could only be persuaded to transfer them. 
when a pious confraternity was formed, the Pope, it was believed, could transfer to the credit of the community a mass of prayers, almsgivings, and other ecclesiastical good deeds, all of which became for the members of the confraternity what a bank advance is to a man starting in business. Some of these associations bought their spiritual treasure from the Pope for so much cash, but there was not always any buying or selling. There was none in the celebrated association of St. Ursula's Shiplein, to which so many devout people, the elector himself included, belonged. Probably little paying of cash took place in the thirty-two pious confraternities of which Dr. Pfeffinger, the trusted counselor of the elector Friedrich, was a member. The machinery of the church, however, secured this advantage, that if by any accident the members of the association failed in praying as they had promised, they had always this transferred treasure to fall back upon. There could be little difference in principle between the Pope transferring a mass of spiritual benefits to a pious brotherhood and his handing over an indefinite amount to the Archbishop of Mainz to be disposed of, as the prelate thought fit, through Tetzel or others. Moreover, it must be remembered that in the course of Luther's religious life down to 1517, there are no traces of anything quixotic, and that is a wonderful proof of the simplicity and strength of his character. He had something of a contempt for men who believe that they are born to set the world right. He compared them to a player at nine pins who imagines he can knock down twelve pins when there are only nine standing. It was only after much hesitation and deep distress of mind that he felt compelled to interfere, and it was his intense earnestness in the practical moral life of his townsmen that compelled him to step forward. When he did intervene, he went about the matter with a mixture of prudence and courage which were eminently characteristic of the man. The castle church of Wittenberg had always been closely connected with the university, and its doors had been used for publication of important academic documents, notices of public disputations on theological matters, common enough at the time, had doubtless often been seen figuring there. The day of the year which drew the largest concourse of townsmen and strangers to the church was the first of November, All Saints' Day. It was the anniversary of the consecration of the church, was commemorated by a prolonged series of services, and the benefits of an indulgence were secured to all who took part in them. At noon on All Saints' Day, Luther nailed his ninety-five theses to the door of the church. It was an academic proceeding. A doctor in theology offered to hold a disputation, such was the usual term, for the purpose of explaining the efficacy of the indulgence. The explanation had ninety-five heads or propositions, all of which, Dr. Martin Luther, theologian, offered to make good against all comers. The subject, judged by the numberless books which had been written upon it, was eminently suitable for debate. The propositions offered were to be matters of discussion, and the author was not supposed, according to the usage of the times, to be definitely committed to the opinions he had expressed. They were simply heads of debate. The document differed, however, from most academic disputations in this, that everyone wished to read it. A duplicate was made in German. Copies of the Latin original and of the German translation were sent to the university printing house, and the presses there could not throw them off fast enough to meet the demand which came from all parts of Germany. 
The question which Luther raised in his thesis was a difficult one. The theological doctrine of indulgences was one of the most complicated of the times, and ecclesiastical opinion on many of the points involved was doubtful. It was part of the penitential system of the medieval church and had changed from time to time according to the changes in that system. Indeed, it may be said that in the matter of indulgences, doctrine had always been framed to justify practices and changes in practice. The beginnings go back a thousand years before the time of Luther. In the ancient church, serious sins involved separation from the fellowship of Christians, and readmission to the communion was dependent not only on public confession, but also on the manifestation of a true repentance by the performance of certain satisfactions, such as the manumission of slaves, prolonged fastings, extensive almsgiving, which were supposed to be well-pleasing in God's sight, and were also the warrant for the community that the penitent might be again received within their midst. It often happened that these satisfactions were mitigated. Penitents might fall sick, and the prescribed fasting could not be insisted upon without danger of death, in which case the impossible satisfaction could be exchanged for an easier one, or the community might be convinced of the sincerity of the repentance without insisting that the prescribed satisfaction should be fully performed. These exchanges and mitigations are the germs out of which indulgences grew. In the course of time, the public confessions became private confessions made to a priest, and the satisfactions private satisfactions imposed by the confessor. This change involved, among other things, a wider circle of sins to be confessed, sins of thought, the sources of sinful actions brought to light by the confessor's questions, and different satisfactions were imposed at the discretion of the priest corresponding to the sins confessed. This led to the construction of penitentiaries containing lists of penances supposed to be proportionate to the sins. In many cases, the penances were very severe and extended over a long course of years. From the 7th century, there arose a system of commutations of penances. A penance of several years' practice of fasting might be commuted into saying so many prayers or psalms, giving prescribed alms, or even into a money fine, and in this last case the analogy of the Wurgeld of the Germanic codes was frequently followed. This new custom commonly took the form that anyone who visited a prescribed church on a day that was named and gave a contribution to the funds of the church, had his penance shortened by one-seventh, one-third, one-half, as the case might be. This was, in every case, a commutation of a penance which had been imposed according to the regulations of the church, relaxido de injuncta penitentia. This power of commuting imposed penance was usually supposed to be in the hands of bishops, and was used by them to provide funds for the building of their great churches. But priests for a time also thought themselves entitled to follow the episcopal example, and did so until the great abuse of the system made the church insist that the power should be strictly kept in episcopal hands. Thus the real origin of indulgences is to be found in the relaxation by the church of a portion of the ecclesiastical penalties imposed according to regular custom. Three conceptions, however, combined to effect a series of changes in the character of indulgences, all of which were in operation in the beginning of the 13th century. These were the formulation of the thought of a treasury of merits, 
the change of the institution of penance into the sacrament of penance, and the distinction between attrition and contrition. The two former led to the belief that the Pope alone had the power to grant indulgences, the treasure needed a guardian to prevent its being squandered, and, when indulgences were judged to be extra-sacramental and a matter of jurisdiction and not of orders, they belonged to the Pope, whose jurisdiction was supreme. The conception of a treasury of merits was first formulated by Alexander of Hales in the 13th century, and his ideas were accepted and stated with more precision by the great schoolmen who followed him. Starting with the existing practice in the church that some penances, such for example as pilgrimages, might be performed vicariously, and bringing together the conceptions that all the faithful are one community, that the good deeds of all the members are the common property of all, that sinners may benefit by the good deeds of their fellows, that the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to wipe out the sins of all, theologians gradually formulated the doctrine that there was a common storehouse containing the good deeds of living men, of the saints in heaven, and the inexhaustible merits of Christ, and that the merits there accumulated had been placed in the charge of the Pope, and could be dispensed by him to the faithful. The doctrine was not thoroughly defined in the 15th century, but it was generally accepted and increased the power and resources of the Pope. It had one immediate consequence on the theory of indulgences. They were no longer regarded as the substitution of some enjoined work for a canonical penance. They could be looked upon as an absolute equivalent of what was due to God, paid over to him out of this treasury of merits. When the institution became the sacrament of penance, it was divided into three parts, contrition, confession, and satisfaction. An absolution was made to accompany confession, and therefore to precede satisfaction, which it had formerly followed. Satisfaction lost its old meaning. It was not the outward sign of inward sorrow, the test of fitness for pardon, and the necessary precedent of absolution. According to the new theory, absolution, which followed confession and preceded satisfaction, had the effect of removing the whole guilt of the sins confessed, and, with the guilt, the whole of the eternal punishment due. But this cancelling of guilt and of eternal punishment did not open straightway the gates of heaven. It was thought that the divine righteousness could not permit the baptized sinner to escape all punishment, so the idea of temporal punishment was introduced, and these poenae temporales, strictly distinguished from the eternal, included punishment in purgatory. The pains of purgatory, therefore, were not included in the absolution, and everyone must suffer these had God not in his mercy provided an alternative in temporal satisfactions. This gave rise to a great uncertainty, for who could have the assurance that the priest in imposing the satisfaction or penance had calculated rightly and had assigned the equivalent which the righteousness of God demanded? It was here that the new idea of indulgences came in to aid the faithful. Indulgences in the sense of relaxations of imposed penance went into the background, and the valuable indulgence was what would secure against the pains of purgatory. Thus, in the opinion of Alexander of Hales, of Bonaventura, and above all of Thomas Aquinas, the real value of indulgences is that they procure the remission of penalties after contrition, confession, and absolution, whether these penalties have been imposed by the priest or not, and when the uncertainty of the imposed penalties is considered, 
indulgences are most valuable with regard to the unimposed penalties. The priest might make a mistake, but God does not. While, as has been seen, indulgences were always related to satisfactions and changed in character with the changes introduced into the meaning of these, they were not less closely affected by the distinction which came to be drawn between attrition and contrition. Until the 13th century, it was always held that contrition or a condition of real sorrow for sin was the one thing taken into account in the according of pardon to the sinner. The theologians of that century, however, began to make a distinction between contrition, or godly sorrow, and attrition, a certain amount of sorrow which might arise from a variety of causes of a more or less unworthy nature. It was held that this attrition, though of itself too imperfect to win the pardon of God, could become perfected through the confession heard by the priest and the absolution administered by him. When this idea was placed in line with the thoughts developed as to the nature of the sacrament of penance, it followed that the weaker the form of sorrow, and the greater the sins confessed and absolved, the heavier were the temporal penalties demanded by the righteousness of God. Indulgences appealed strongly to the indifferent Christian who knew that he had sinned, and who knew, at the same time, that his sorrow did not amount to contrition. His conscience, however weak, told him that he could not sin with perfect impunity, and that something more was needed than his perfunctory confession and the absolution of the priest. He felt that he must make some amends, that he must perform some satisfying act, or obtain an indulgence at some cost to himself. Hence, for the ordinary indifferent Christian attrition, confession, and indulgence, stood forth as the three great heads of the scheme of the church for his salvation. This doctrine of attrition and its applications had not the undivided support of the church of the later Middle Ages, but it was the doctrine which was taught by most of the Scotus divines who took the lead in theological thinking during these times. It was taught in its most pronounced form by such a representative man as John von Paltz, who was professor of theology in the Erfurt Monastery when Luther entered upon his monastic career. It was preached by the indulgence sellers. It was specially valuable in securing good sales of indulgences, and therefore in increasing the papal profits. It lay at the basis of that whole doctrine and practice of indulgences, which confronted Luther when he felt himself compelled to attack them. The practice of indulgences, on whatever theory they were upheld, had enmeshed the whole penitentiary system of the church in the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries. The papal power was at first sparingly used. It is true that in 1095 Pope Urban II promised an indulgence to the crusaders such as had never been heard of, namely, a plenary indulgence or a complete remission of all imposed canonical penances, but it was not until the 13th and 14th centuries that indulgences were lavished by the Pope even more unsparingly than they had been previously by the bishops. From the beginning of the 13th century, they were promised in order to find recruits for wars against heretics, such as the Abigensis, against opponents of papal political schemes. In short, to recruit the papal armies for wars of all kinds. They were granted freely to the religious orders, either for the benefits of the members or as rewards to the faithful, who visited their churches and made contributions to their funds. They were bestowed on special churches or cathedrals, or on altars in churches, 
and had the effect of endowments. They were given to hospitals and for the rebuilding, repair, and upkeep of bridges. The elector had one attached to his bridge at Torgo and had employed Tetzel to preach its benefits. They were attached to special collections of relics to be earned by the faithful who visited the shrines. In short, it is difficult to say to what they were not given and for what money-getting purpose they had not been employed. The Fugers amassed much of their wealth from commissions received in managing these indulgences, but perhaps it may be said that the indulgence system reached its height in the great jubilee indulgences which were granted by successive popes beginning with Boniface VIII. They were first bestowed on pilgrims who actually visited Rome and prayed at prescribed times within certain churches. Then the same indulgence came to be bestowed on persons who were willing to give at least what a journey to Rome would have cost them, and in the end they could be had on much easier terms. Wherever indulgences are met with, they are surrounded with a sordid system of money-getting, and, as Luther said in a sermon which he preached on the subject before he had prepared his theses, they were a very grievous instrument to be placed in the hands of avarice. The theories of theologians had always followed the customs of the church. Indulgences existed and had to be explained. This is the attitude of the two great schoolmen, Bonaventura and Thomas Aquinas, who did more than any other theologians to provide a theological basis for the practice. The practice itself had altered, and new explanations had been made to suit the alterations. It is needless to say that the theological explanations did not always agree, and that sometimes the terms of the proclamation of an indulgence went beyond the theories of many of the theological defenders of the system. To take one instance, did an indulgence give remission for the guilt of sin or only for certain penalties attached to sinful deeds? This is a matter still keenly debated. The theory adopted by all defenders of indulgences who have written on the subject since the Council of Trent is that guilt, culpa, and eternal punishment are dealt with in the sacrament of penance, and that indulgences have to do with temporal punishments only, including under that phrase the penalties of purgatory. It is also to be admitted that this modern opinion is confirmed by the most eminent medieval theologians before the Council of Trent. Those admissions, however, do not settle the question. Medieval theology did not create indulgences, it only followed and tried to justify the practices of popes and the Roman Curia, a confessedly difficult task. The question still remains whether the official documents did not assert that indulgences did remove guilt as well as penalty of the temporal kind. If documents granting indulgences, published after the sacrament of penance had been formulated, be examined, it will be found that many of them, while proclaiming the indulgence and its benefits, make no mention of the necessity of previous confession and priestly absolution, that others expressly assert that the indulgence confers a remission of guilt, culpa, as well as penalty, and that very many, especially in the jubilee times, use language which inevitably led intelligent laymen, Dante for example, to believe that the indulgence remitted the guilt as well as the penalties of actual sins, and when all due allowance has been made, it is very difficult to avoid the conclusion that indulgences had been declared on the highest authority to be efficacious for the removal of the guilt of sins in the presence of God. 
Luther, however, approached the whole question not from the side of theological theory, but from its practical moral effect on the minds of the common people, who were not theologians and on whom refined distinctions were thrown away, and the evidence that the people believed that the indulgence remitted the guilt as well as the penalties of sins is overwhelming. Putting aside the statements or views of Hughes, Wycliffe, and the Piers Plowman series of poems, contemporary chroniclers are found describing indulgences given for crusades or in times of jubilee as remissions of guilt as well as of penalty. Contemporary preachers dwelt on the distinction between the partial and the plenary indulgence, asserted that the latter meant remission of guilt as well as of penalty, and explained their statements by insisting that the plenary indulgence included within it the sacrament of penance. The popular guidebooks written for pilgrims to Rome and Compostela spread the popular ideas about indulgences, and this without any interference from the ecclesiastical authorities. The Mirabilia Romae, a very celebrated guidebook for pilgrims to Rome, which had gone through 19 Latin and 12 German editions before the year 1500, says expressly that every pilgrim who visits the Lateran has forgiveness of all sins, of guilt as well as of penalty, and makes the same statement about the virtues of the indulgences given to other shrines. The popular belief was so well acknowledged that even councils had to excuse themselves from having fostered it, and did so by laying the blame on the preachers and sellers of indulgences, or, like the Council of Constance, impeached the Pope and compelled him to confess that he had granted indulgences for the remission of guilt as well as of penalty. This widespread popular belief justified the attitude taken up by Luther. But if it be granted that the intelligent belief of the Church, as found in the writings of its most respected theologians, was that the indulgence remitted the penalty and not the guilt of the sin, it is well to notice what this meant. Since the formulation of the doctrine of the sacrament of penance, the theory had been that all guilt of sin and all eternal punishment were remitted in the priestly absolution which followed the confession of the penitent. The sacrament of penance had abolished guilt and hell, but there remained actual sins to be punished because the righteousness of God demanded it, and this was done in the temporal pains of purgatory. The common man, if he thought at all on the matter, might be excused if he considered that guilt and hell, if taken away by the one hand, were restored by the other, and that the whole series of questions discussed by the theologians amounted to little more than dialectical fencing with phrases. He was taught, and he believed, that punishment awaited him for his sins, and a temporal punishment which might last thousands of years was not very different from an eternal one in his eyes. With these thoughts, the indulgence was offered to him as a sure way of easing his conscience and avoiding the punishment which he knew to be deserved. He had only to pay a sum of money and perform the canonical good deed enjoined, whatever it might be, and he had the remission of his punishment and the sense that God's justice was satisfied. It was this practical ethical effect of the indulgences, and not the theological explanations about them, which stirred Luther to make his protest. End of section 15. Recording by Maria James.